fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino. John Copenhaver and Al Warren on 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 105.0 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, and today co-hosting we've got Mr. Eric Shapiro. Al, how's everything? It's, it's always good. Even when it's bad, it's oh, fun, good. Right? We like to be bad. Oh, that's, that's the only way to navigate. <laughs> Make the best of the mess you've got. Yeah. Yeah. Other, otherwise, you're you're just in a corner your yeah. whole life. Yeah. No, it's been busy. Uh, you know, we've got a couple of Seattle stations running parts of the shows now, and so it's been uh, a little extra busy last little while. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, that's good, but tiring. And uh, you, you're doing your filming, and all that's going good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, post-production on one movie. I'm in pre-production on another. Some wedged in here. Um, so officially, this is my last co-hosting appearance. So I'm going to give it my all, but I, I have a feeling I'll be back 20 or 30 more times for, you know, I'll, I'll keep harassing you for guest appearances. Well, that's good. I mean, the, yeah. <laughs> the more the merrier. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Well, let's get into it now. Today we're going to be talking about Alcatraz and uh, focusing on the book Alcatraz Ghost Story. And it's the story of Roy Gardner's amazing train robberies, escapes, and lifelong love. So the author of the book is with us, and he's from he's in Alcatraz now while he's doing the interview. So Brian Stannard, thank you for being here. Yes, thank you again for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Brian, what are you doing in Alcatraz right now? <laughs> what are you doing over there? Are you in jail? <laughs> uh, so right now I'm on my lunch break. Right now I'm in the prison hospital in a small room hidden away from where all the other action is. Uh, I am on my lunch break right now, but uh, in the main cell house we've got thousands of visitors circulating around. It's a very popular spot, as it should be. It's a completely fascinating spot. I've been working here for four years. I have yet to have a day where I'm bored or trying to figure out things to think about or things to ruminate on. And it's a very international destination, so it's interesting just seeing how people from around the world are perceiving this kind of strange but also beautiful place. I'm looking out a window right now, and it what's so strange about Alcatraz, and especially when you think about it historically, it's in one of the most beautiful settings in the San Francisco Bay. I'm looking at the bay right now, and there's birds. It's a bird sanctuary. So definitely this odd paradox of what used to be a major federal penitentiary in this beautiful setting. What exactly do you do, you do at Alcatraz? What, what exactly is your job? Yeah, so I help supervise the cell house audio tours, and it's a great audio tour. It's The people who narrate it are former correctional officers and former inmates of Alcatraz, and at this point they've since passed away. And so it, we we're very fortunate to be able to get that on record and to incorporate it into the, into the audio tour just to give it an atmosphere of authenticity. And then in addition to that, I'm always around floating, helping to answer people's questions and to tell stories about Alcatraz, depending on what 
people want to talk about. So it's a pretty dynamic place, and especially in the summertime, it gets pretty crowded here. If anyone is interested in coming to Alcatraz, I would recommend this time of the year in the winter time. It's not as crowded, and the, it's very moody. There's a lot of – I'm staring out the window right now at – this very mysterious, iconic fog sitting on the San Francisco Bay, and there's a gigantic raven sitting outside my windowsill right now. So it's a perfect atmosphere. Wow, and you're an expert. It sounds like you're an expert on Alcatraz. Yeah, so uh, as I said, the, the, this whole location is so fascinating. So, of course, when I work here, I always refer to it as the Alcatraz bait-and-switch meaning that most visitors who come here, they want to talk about Al Capone, which makes sense. Of course, people want to learn about Al Capone. Uh, but then when they are here, after a little while, they learn about new things that they had no idea were even a part of the Alcatraz history. Uh, for example, the Native American occupation of 1969 was this completely separate history of Alcatraz that's really interesting that a lot of people don't know about. And that was part of the larger civil rights movement of the 1960s. Uh, this was led by a charismatic man named Richard Oakes, and in time they called it the Red Power Movement. So we have a big uh, exhibit about that as well on Alcatraz in addition to the main cell house. Wow. Okay. But your book is about a specific person that was at, was in Alcatraz. Correct. So the, the book Alcatraz Ghost Story is the biography of Roy Gardner. He was one of the first inmates at Alcatraz back in 1934. He was part of the initial arrival of inmates, which included Al Capone and Machine Gun Kelly. Uh, but at the time that Roy Gardner arrived in 1934, for prison standards, he was already pretty old. He was 50 years old when he arrived at Alcatraz, and so he had already done quite a bit of time in other federal penitentiaries, including Leavenworth and McNeil Island up by Seattle and the Atlanta Penitentiary. And then uh, Alcatraz opened as a federal penitentiary in 1934, and he was one of the first inmates there. So why Roy Gardner? Like, what, what drew you to him? Like, why are you, why are you writing the story? Yeah, so that's a great question. So to answer that question, I'm going to go back to the early 2000s. So about 20 years ago, I was working in San Francisco's Tenderloin neighborhood, uh, which which is San Francisco's Skid Row area. It, it has a bad reputation. It's usually in the news for bad reasons. And, and part of that reputation is absolutely deserved. It, it can be a pretty bleak area of street-level drug addiction and incredible amount. It's actually heartbreaking, all of the uh, fatal overdoses that have occurred with fentanyl. So it's a tough and rough neighborhood. But when I worked there about 20 years ago, I frequently had to work inside the single-room occupancy hotels or the SROs. And I would just see so many stories of despite this bad environment, there were so many people, so many good people who were doing their best to survive and just work through a bad hand of playing cards, uh, elderly people, immigrant groups. And it, it impacted me. And it just kind of made my mind think and wonder just about all of the stories within the Tenderloin. And so I was frequently trying to develop a story in my mind about how to do a story about the Tenderloin that was more dynamic than just the typical bad press that it always gets. Uh, but it just kind of remained an idea for a while. And then meanwhile, I was, and I talk about this in the introduction, I was developing my own addiction issues with alcohol. And so I, it was messing my life up. And I, it, I was at a crossroads of just do or die in terms of how I was going to proceed next. And so it, it was a couple of false starts, but I went to rehab a few times and, Finally managed to get some traction on uh, sobriety, and um, and then I also started to ponder potentially writing a memoir about that experience, but I, I didn't quite get any 
clear ideas just yet. And then I started working at Alcatraz four years ago. And then at Alcatraz, I, of course, started a crash course on learning all about the Alcatraz inmates. And I started to learn about this Alcatraz inmate that wasn't more well-known in the popular mind and uh, Roy Gardner. And the thing that really drew me into Roy Gardner more than all the other inmates at Alcatraz was that when Roy Gardner finished his prison obligations in the late 1930s, he ended up in the Tenderloin in San Francisco. So for me, that just rounded the circle of all these intriguing things that I'd been wanting to write some kind of a book about or a story about, starting with the Tenderloin, starting with my own addiction issues, and then learning about this inmate at Alcatraz who ended up in the Tenderloin in the 1930s. And in terms of the addiction issues, so as I mentioned earlier, Roy Gardner arrived at Alcatraz when he was a 50-year-old convict, and his life was defined by a lot of bad choices. He was an intelligent, charismatic man, but he just made all these bad choices, mainly around gambling. And so I know some people, there can be some discussion as to whether gambling is an addiction But I I definitely identified with the bad choices that he made and the bad consequences that happened throughout his life as a result of gambling and how it it resonated with my own experiences with alcoholism. And so all of a sudden, all of these boxes were getting checked off where it just became a floodgate where I finally figured out that maybe this will be the story that I will write, the biography of Roy Gardner and touching upon issues of addiction and then also being able to finally – develop a story about the tenderloin that I had been ruminating about for so many years. And then during the research of Ray Gardner, every new plot development that I discovered uh, based on the historical research, the story just got more and more wild. I I couldn't believe that a more comprehensive story about his life hadn't already been finished before. So that just gave me more motivation to be the person to, to take it across the finish line. Where did you look? How was the research process? Yeah, so the research was pretty interesting. So Roy Gardner, as I mentioned before, he was a very intelligent man. He was pretty savvy. And this is what I also found was interesting. The peak of his criminal exploits were in the early 1920s. And so whether by design or by accident or by the fact that he was kind of a charming guy, a little bit of a used car salesman, he had a skill for courting the media at the time period, which, of course, was Uh, were newspapers. And so he became, many newspaper editors became enamored with him, and he courted newspaper editors and newspaper writers. And he himself wrote much of his own autobiography while he was in prison at McNeil Island near Seattle. And after he wrote parts of his autobiography, he would send them out to San Francisco newspapers. And so I had an immediate treasure chest of material to draw upon, And then what I found fascinating was that, again, most people hadn't really heard of Roy Gardner's story in the 21st century, myself included, until I started working at Alcatraz. But then when I looked in the historical record, looking in the databases and the microfiche archives of the early 1920s, he was in the newspaper constantly. He was this media sensation in 1921 where he, almost on a daily basis, the newspapers were covering his shenanigans, which included breaking out of prison and robbing trains. And as I said, he, whether by design or accident, he cultivated this image as being, he got the nickname the Smiling Bandit. He was one of those guys where he he was a bandit. There's no mistaking about it. It wasn't a case of he was falsely accused of crimes he didn't commit. He was robbing trains. He was escaping from prison, but he always managed to do so with a minimum amount of violence. And then once he was he was caught, he would make these public 
statements to the press congratulating the police officers. So he was always very gracious in defeat. And so he became a little bit of a media darling for that time period, which I thought was kind of amusing and interesting to follow. So, so he's called the Smiling Bandit. So what can you tell us about that? Why was he called that? Yeah, so there's a pretty iconic photo. So in 1921, as I mentioned before, 1920, 1921 was sort of the peak of him constantly getting into trouble. And so what is also interesting about Roy Gardner is that throughout his adult life, he would toggle back and forth between being a bandit and then being a law-abiding citizen. So he had a wife, he had a child, and for a time period, he developed a skill as being a welder. He worked in the Mayor Island shipyards in the San Francisco Bay Area during the World War I era. He was a well-respected welder and really good at his craft. And so he had a phase where he was a law-abiding citizen who was respected by his community. But uh, he had this gambling itch. And so he had a bad weekend in Tijuana down at the horse tracks. And he came back into San Diego after this last weekend of losing the family savings, and he was trying to figure out how to make things right with his wife. And again, this is where this sort of addiction-type mentality, my antenna went off. Uh, he was trying to figure out, okay, I'm totally screwed up. How am I, how am I going to make this right with my wife? So he decided to rob a mail truck in San Diego, which is a federal crime. And so he robs this mail truck, and he eventually gets caught. And as is his pattern, once he gets caught, he makes a big public statement talking about how brave and honorable the man who caught him was. So I think that kind of endeared him to the police and the local authorities. And he was also a conventionally handsome man, so I'm sure he was kind of considered almost like a matinee idol for the time period. Uh, but then once he's arrested in San Diego, it creates this chain reaction of events throughout the course of 1920 and 1921, where they're constantly trying to, to transport him via train from San Diego, Sacramento, to McNeil Island Prison near Seattle. And he's constantly escaping from the prison train. And he's having periods where he's on the lam, and then he will eventually get caught. And then during one of these occasions where he's caught, uh, one of the, there's an iconic photograph of him. Uh, he's handcuffed and the police officers next to him and Roy Gardner's just got this beaming smile on his face. And so that, of course, lent itself to the moniker of the smiling bandit. And he always did these robberies alone? He did. That, that's what he said he did. Um, yeah, he was a lone wolf. And so that is also, uh, once he's later on down the road, when, when he's in Alcatraz, kind of when we get into what some people refer to as the gangster years of Prohibition in the early 1930s, uh, he would make many written appeals to the president trying to advocate for his release from prison, uh, trying to base, using an argument that he was kind of a lone bandit. He's not part of this larger Al Capone criminal network. Uh, so he uses that to to try to gain favor as well. How do you interpret the psychology of him always acknowledging and thanking the police? Like, what was he doing? Yeah, so, and I think that was another fascinating part of the Roy Gardner story, which drew him in, is that there's, I don't think there's an easy answer. I think he's a very compelling villain. Uh, and I use this description in my book where I don't know if he's an anti-hero or an anti-villain because, again, he toggles back and forth between being this family man, but he is a bandit. And then throughout the book, uh, once at a certain point, he stops escaping from prison through the conventional routes of just escaping. Right. 
And then he uses all these different legal defenses to try to advocate as to why he should be released from prison. Uh, some of them, including what I mentioned earlier, by claiming that he was a lone bandit, he's not part of the mafia or anything. And so it kind of becomes this question as to whether is he just sort of a, a charming scoundrel or is he actually a good guy who's just made bad decisions? And there's not a definitive answer to that question, which I think makes it an interesting question when it's all said and done. The other uh, part of the story that comes up during a law-abiding phase of his life before he's in prison, he's a miner in Arizona. He's a copper miner. And there's a horrible mine cave-in that nearly kills him. And so right then and there, the, the doctors that are part of this mining company have to, to do an operation on his skull to prevent him from dying. And so he gets this silver plate in his head. And this is long before he commits most of his uh, more notorious crimes. But later on, he both he and his wife and also one of the arresting police officers who he, he befriends go on the vaudeville circuit in the 1920s saying that the only reason that Roy Gardner committed all of these crimes is because of this brain injury. We just need to uh, do another brain surgery on him to correct the bad work that they did back at that copper mine. And then if we can get this uh, brain situation figured out, then he'll be a law-abiding citizen again. And so that's a whole other weird tangent to the story and there could be some kernel of truth to what they're saying, but I don't know. Uh, they don't use the word lobotomy. The, our notion of lobotomies hadn't quite come into, into play yet, but they're, without using that exact word, they're suggesting that if Roy Gardner could just get a lobotomy, then he should get released from prison. <laughs> and, and they go on the vaudeville circuit. His wife becomes a media star in her own right on the vaudeville circuit, which is another interesting aspect of the story, I felt, of the actual historical story. So tell us more about that. His wife became a vaudeville star? Yeah, so um, so again, there's this phase where Roy Garner's just escaping from prison all the time. Uh, from McNeil Island Penitentiary in Seattle was the spot that never really managed to incarcerate Roy. So once he's finally caught, and he'll escape and he'll be on the lam for a while. Eventually, the authorities figure out, okay, this relationship with Roy Gardner and McNeil Island is not working out. So they send him to Leavenworth in Kansas. And then whether, and it's not entirely clear, I, my suspicion is that maybe Leavenworth was better suited for not having people escape from. But Roy Gardner, he's, he's not able to escape from Leavenworth, and there's not any evidence that he made any serious attempts to escape from Leavenworth. But it's at this point that his wife then takes to the vaudeville circuit with her claim saying that what he really needs is a, is a brain operation. And then what's all, he too joins the vaudeville circuit, making the exact same message. And they're not competing with each other. They're on separate directions of the vaudeville circuit. But his wife, Dolly, is on the vaudeville circuit saying that what Roy really needs is a brain operation in order to get out of, and once he gets that brain operation, he'll be cured of his criminal ways. And then, so for, therefore, he should be released from prison. And then what's also interesting is that one of the police officers who once arrested Roy, he too takes to the vaudeville circuit, making the exact same claim that what Roy really needs is a brain operation. And both this police officer and Dolly, his wife, are on different parts of the vaudeville circuit, but they're making the exact same argument. And they all become friends with each other. This arresting police officer, he writes letters to Roy in prison. He's always advocating for him. And he, when, this arresting police officer, whenever he's able to, he'll send some money to Dolly, his wife, to help her out because she's pretty much a uh, prison widow. So all these weird, interesting relationships come about. 
that I just thought the entire historical story was was so fascinating. I, I just never got tired of learning more about it. And the, the fact that it is ambiguous, that it's kind of difficult to tell what's going on. Is this all just one big hustle or is there any truth to what they're saying? Uh, we don't know because they're all dead at this point. It was 100 years ago. Uh, but the mystery remains, and the mystery to me is very interesting. It sounds like he was very charming. Yeah, so throughout the, the course of his life, and he moved around a lot. He's all over the West Coast. And so it, it, there's this theme in his life where wherever he arrives, he frequently is just quickly making friends and fitting in with the community. And the fact that he was able to become really good friends with one of the police officers to arrest him, it just lends itself to this idea that, he, like you said, he is charming. And what I think is interesting is that, again, it's 100 years ago, they're all dead, we have some photographs, but we can't actually interview them or see any motion pictures to get a sense of his charisma, but we just have to use our imaginations to to fill in the gaps, because there's absolutely a, a pattern where he is a bit of a charmer. But like I said, I don't know if that's just deep, genuine charm or if he's a bit of a con artist and or maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Yeah, it sounds to me, and I'm just speculating, just putting different pieces together. But if he had a pattern of charming the people that were arresting him, then making public statements on their behalf or at least praising them, it would seem like there was a manipulative motive. I mean, that's my superficial interpretation. Does that does that watch or you're not sure yeah no no i mean i think that and that, again that's what i think is so interesting about all of this is that there's not one solid right or wrong answer um i think what you're saying is is absolutely plausible but i think that maybe um he just kind of was genuinely a nice guy just in terms of his uh center of gravity uh, but if he knew that he needed to lay it on thick he could also lay it on thick if that could help get him out of trouble too and like I said, that it's on a spectrum, and I'm sure different readers, different people who follow the story will have different interpretations. And that's why I find this to overall be a curious story, is that it doesn't lend itself to easy analysis. Now, we don't want to give away too many spoilers, but can you tell us about the circumstances of his death? Yeah, so again, so he ends up at, so the other interesting thing about this storyline is that, so his wife, Dolly, is in the San Francisco Bay Area. That's where he met and courted her, and that's where they started their family. They live both in San Francisco and Oakland, and she's from the Napa area in terms of where her extended family lives. So Napa, San Francisco, Oakland, that's kind of their home base. Uh, but then, of course, once Roy gets arrested and he's in prison for the long term, he tends to be at Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas. So in the early 1930s, the Great Depression is starting, and I'm just trying to imagine this through the eyes of citizens. I mean, everything that people thought the world that as people thought that it should have been behaving all of a sudden is going backwards. Nothing makes sense anymore. And then there's all these bandits running around. There's people like Al Capone. There's all these high profile kidnappers, uh, kidnapping adults for ransom. So it's this crazy time period. So it's within this crazy time period that the federal Bureau of prisons begins discussing the idea of making, they didn't use the word supermax, but they wanted to make a prison that was like the supermax prisons that we think of them today, just so that the, the authorities could show to the public that they're doing something to get a handle on this new crazy world that was unfolding. And so um, that supermax prison was Alcatraz. And so when Roy Gardner is at Leavenworth, he hears through the grapevine about this new prison, and he, I think he just kind of heard that it was going to be in San Francisco. So he actually volunteered 
to be one of the first inmates at Alcatraz because he thought that if he got transferred to San Francisco, this would put him geographically closer to his wife, and then he and his wife and daughter could visit him on a regular basis. And at that point, his wife Dolly had already stuck by his side for around 15 years. So I use that expression. She was a prison widow, but uh, she defied all the usual statistics for what a prison wife would tolerate. Uh, and she stuck by his, his side all that time. And so I think Roy thought that, well, if I get even geographically closer to her, this will make our marriage, which has already been strained, uh, maybe it'll kind of shore things up and strengthen strengthen things up a little bit. But it's not a whole, it's not too big of a spoiler because in the book, in the introduction, I, I pretty much explained that that plan did not pan out for him. Uh, eventually, he does finish all of his prison obligations, and he ends up in the Tenderloin in San Francisco. And, um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Leave it there. Uh, let's talk about you as a writer. This is your first book? It is, yes. How long did it take you to write? Yeah, so the writing process I did, I started the research before COVID, and then during the COVID pandemic, uh, one unexpected blessing of the COVID pandemic is that it just gave me a lot of time to write this, and I was able to do a lot of the research on newspaper archives that I had subscribed to online. So, yeah, most of it was written uh, during the pandemic, and then once I had the good, solid draft finished, so much of it was waiting. Um, meaning sending it out to publishing companies and then waiting about six months and then having individual publishing companies send things back to me with suggestions and then the one publisher that eventually picked it up a really extensive rewriting process and editing and just a whole lot of waiting it's definitely been an exercise in patience so i would say that i started this in earnest in 2019 I, I would say that I finished the bulk of it in 2021, and it's finally been released a, a couple of weeks ago. Who's the publisher? Skyhorse Publishers, based out of New York. So you got a good publishing company. How many rejections? Did, did you keep count how many rejections you got? Yes, yeah, so I think it was about 25. That's not bad. I mean, there are writers that get hundreds. Yeah, yeah, and I know that, and I, I knew that going into it. And, and like I said, um, for for any new aspiring writer, you just got to kind of brace yourself and get a thick skin. Uh, one thing in the rejections that was actually very helpful to me, the, the best rejections that I got provided detailed and constructive criticism. So it wasn't just like, oh, no, this is terrible. Like, get out of our face. Uh, one editor in particular said that although she liked it, this is kind of what she thought might have been missing. It was still a no, but she at least gave me an opportunity, you know, without crushing my spirit. She encouraged me to kind of look at things from a different angle, and that was very helpful to me. You went ahead with the notes she gave you, and you put them in? Yeah, it wasn't so much a note. She just, um, it was her, her advice. Her, her advice to this was, the story is well written, but what, what's the point? That was her, that, that was her rejection, and even though that sounds harsh, it made me realize that, okay, I, I, I failed at what I set out to do. Uh, I, I need to go back to the drawing board because, like, it was a communication gap on my part because for me, as I mentioned when I began this interview this morning, this story was always very, very compelling to me. And so from my perspective, it, it for sure has a point. So if I wasn't able to articulate what the point of all of this is, then that's something I need to develop more. And so for me, that's where I realized that why this story was so compelling to me was I believe because of my own addiction issues and how I saw a lot of 
Ray Gardner's strained relationship problems when he was a 50-year-old man at Alcatraz. Even though that's a pretty foreign concept to me, superficially, there are aspects to it that I could absolutely identify with. And there, there are absolutely reasons why of all the 1,500 inmates at Alcatraz, I chose him to write a biography on. Tell us about, go through the list and what you and him have in common. Uh, we were both, uh, <laughs> uh, we, we both have, uh, we both arrived at Alcatraz in our forties or in his case when he was 50. I started working here four years ago. I'm in my forties. So it was, um, I kind of joked with somebody else uh, that this was kind of my midlife crisis, but instead of buying a fancy car, I just pivoted and started working at Alcatraz, and I actually love it. <laughs> it's actually – no, it's, it's a great place. I, I absolutely love working here uh, because in terms of aging or how to, to age well, it, it facilitates so much curiosity for me, and I think that that is one of the – Secrets to aging well is to always remain curious. I think once people just kind of get settled and they just assume that they know everything or that everything is boring, I think that that is when an individual is doomed. I think people just have to be able to stay engaged in the world. I come out here every day and I've yet to be bored working here. And then going back to your question about Roy Gardner. So, yeah, his relationship with his wife was on the ropes for sure when he got to Alcatraz. And then with, with my – in terms of – aging, I, I think that one of the most important aspects to age well is for a person to maintain curiosity. I think that if people are getting older and they just assume that they know everything and they're just going to sit on the couch, I think that that is a bit of a death sentence. And that is why I love working at Alcatraz because I work here all the time and I have yet to have a day where I'm less than fascinated working here. And I, I think that facilitates a lot of youthful energy and, yeah, that's my advice to everyone is just stay curious about the world, be engaged in something that just facilitates that curiosity and wonder about the world, because I, I think that's just the secret sauce. Where did, you, where did you work before, Brian, before Alcatraz? Yeah, so like I said, I, I worked in the Tenderloin for many years, for about, gosh, 25 years. Uh, I worked for a great agency, similar to Meals on Wheels. It was providing meals to people who are homebound. Uh, due to critical illnesses, um, and it's a great organization. And in my 20s and 30s, I was convinced that I could save the world. But at the same time, as I mentioned, I was destroying myself with my own alcoholism. So it didn't make any sense. There's that expression or that idea when you're on an airplane that you know before you start saving all the other people, make sure that your own parachute is working well first. And I was not adhering to that code in terms of my life and my approach to how I was doing things. And yeah, I, I, I have enough time distance on it now. I, I've been sober for a while, but when I think back to my mind and just how I was living, it, it's kind of frightening to me. Just it, It's kind of a weird thing to be you know, drinking to die. I can't believe I was actually engaged in that lifestyle. And so again, I'm just very happy to be in a new place like Alcatraz, which is a weird paradox that this place used to be the source of so much uh, sadness and sorrow and frustration. But in the 21st century, for me and for all the people who visit here, it's actually this interesting, mind-expanding place. And that's a whole other tangent, too, is that it's kind of like the United Nations out here. There's so many people from all around the world. And the staff here, we're, we're pretty good diplomats for America. And so a lot of people, they're very first, they're on vacation, they just arrived to America, maybe their plane was late, so they they didn't have a chance to go to their hotel. So sometimes the Alcatraz staff might be the very first 
Americans or Californians that they get to interact with. And I think that that's a, a pretty cool responsibility that we get to uh, run with. And I think we do a great job at doing it. And it's just one of those examples of there are different ways in which people can help maintain the larger peace of the world and just being nice to people in your moment-to-moment life, as simple as that sounds, it's important. Ryan, do you feel that um, changing your environment um, from the tenderloin job and, and, and then going into this environment which is so positive and keeps your curiosity satiated, was that a big part of recovering from addiction for you? Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. I, it, I, definitely not the only part, but, but it's definitely helped. I always say that I think people become addicted to things it's very complicated why people become addicted. And so I think people need to make it as equally complicated to get into sobriety. Complicated, maybe, I'm trying to think of a better word that doesn't have negative connotations. But uh, they need to come up with a, a course of action that's dynamic. So lots of different things. Uh, you know, you can't just change your environment uh, in the rehab recovery rooms, they call that, doing a geographic. Uh, you, you can't just change your environment. You do got to pivot your own thinking but if, if you're in a bad environment that's not helping you changing your environment into something more positive is of course gonna alleviate some of the issues as well now forgive me if i missed a step but did, getting back to roy did he ever overcome his own addiction issues um i i don't know and so and i definitely wanted to emphasize that uh so i I viewed gambling as sort of his main Achilles heel. Some Got people it. wouldn't really call that an addiction. Okay. But but I identified some of the behaviors around it and definitely just the negative consequences maybe is how I uh, responded and, and how that resonated with me. I guess, yeah, the, the negative consequences, the, the idea of like, okay, I just need a quick fix. And if this quick fix works, that'll be great. But too often than not, it creates disaster. So... That is sort of the part that I identified with. Yeah, so in terms of whether or not he got cured of that, I'm not too sure. I think he just ended up being in prison so long that by the time he got out, and this is, I don't even want to call it a cliche, but it's just such a common thing that you see with prisoners where they're in prison. They're not really allowed to grow with the larger society. And then once they're put out back into the world again, it's like they've got their left shoe on their right foot and they just don't know how to get reintegrated in a healthy man. It sounds like the book has been very personal for you, very important. And uh, what, how do you think writing this book and going through the process of it uh, and getting it out published has changed you? Yeah, it definitely makes me accountable. Um, I, I know a lot of friends and family, of course, know about my struggles. But like I'm now at a point where I've been sober long enough where I feel more comfortable just saying, like, look, this is where I was five to ten years ago. Um, and if if reading about this is surprising to you, then then that's actually kind of a good thing because that means that how you know me now is sort of a foreign and odd representation of me in a good way. I read one review of the book already on Goodreads where the person said that they liked the book, but they thought that it was a little bit too sad. And I, I think that there's some truth to it, but I feel like, I myself am the positive epilogue to it that uh, I describe Roy Gardner as a cautionary tale for myself that I was very intrigued with Roy Gardner for much of his life, but I did not want to end up like Roy Gardner. And I feel like, knock on wood, at this exact moment in time, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I managed to avoid the trap of, of Roy Gardner, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, of course. And and so is that kind of the subtext? Do you have kind of a meaning that you want people to take away from this book? Yeah, I think so. That um, yeah, even though this. And in the introduction of the book, I write that there's sort of two ways to approach this story. On the one hand, all of his escapes and the jailbreaks and robbing trains, that appealed to kind of my juvenile sense of adventure. But then there's this other heavier part that appeals to my more adult side, which is how does a person navigate marriage? How does a person become a successful parent? How does a person uh, find engagement in life as they get older? And uh, so even though the example of Roy Gardner doesn't have the happy ending, um, I felt that there was a time in my own life where I was on the train tracks that he was on, uh, but I felt like I was able to get off that moving train myself. And I feel like I myself am now doing really well as an aging adult and a parent and a husband. Wow. So what do you got coming up next? Or what are you, are you going to do another book? Or are you going to continue doing this? Yeah, so right now I'm uh, just collecting notes. Again, as I've mentioned before, I've probably mentioned this about 20 times already. Uh, no pun intended for uh, addiction issues, but I'm sure you could talk about the uh, the Alcatraz drinking game. Uh, how many times has Brian mentioned that Alcatraz is fascinating? The first drafts that are 20th century was this place of sorrow and incarceration, but in the 21st century it's a park that thousands of people visit every day from all over the world, and it has this weird party festive dynamic to it which sounds odd, but like I said, it's in this beautiful environment. And so all day I'm interacting with people from around the world. you look at the larger news right now, oh, my gosh, there's plenty to, to get concerned about. But at the very least, within this 10-foot radius of what I can control, uh, my coworkers and I were being nice to people from Japan, from Canada, from Santiago, Chile. And uh, there's a lot of light and laughter here at Alcatraz. So I feel like we're creating a, a whole new narrative to Alcatraz uh, that's a little bit different than what people might perceive based on it being a prison in the 20th century. Well, fantastic. Listen, now, have you got a website? Do you do social media? How do you think readers can find you? Okay, yes. Yeah, so the website is brianstanner.com, just my name, brianstanner.com. And then, yeah, I'm a, I, I love libraries. The, the library was such an incredible source of research for me. I, I refer to it as going to the well. So the book is currently available at many uh, city libraries, and if it's not already there on the shelves, you can request it to be ordered to be put on the shelves. I love libraries. I love librarians. They were kind of the, the VIP uh, members of this process of doing all the research. Fantastic. Now, we're going to have your website and the book, everything up on ours, and we appreciate you being here. Now, we've had the um, author of Alcatraz Ghost Story, and it's Brian Stanner. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. I absolutely appreciate the opportunity to do it. And, uh, yeah, i got to go back in and start talking about Al Capone with people from England and Australia and field their questions. And, and again, I, I'm very grateful. Thank you for this opportunity. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.